Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for it is a light to our path and a lamp in the midst of darkness. Father, we pray that we would cling to your word as the source of life, as the source of wisdom. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us in his death and resurrection and reign over all things. Father, would your word point us to him today that we might live faithfully as his followers. This we ask in his name. Amen. Really enjoyed preaching through James. I know we've kind of been on and off with James for a while now, but I've really enjoyed preaching through James. And one thing that's really jumped out to me as we've worked our way through this letter is just how relevant it is. I know all of scripture is relevant, but James is, is so relevant to the things we are facing as a church right now in our culture. It almost has this ripped from the headlines feel to it. Uh, it was written almost 2,000 years ago, sometime probably in the mid-30s of the first century. It's addressed to Jewish Christians who have scattered out from Jerusalem because of persecution in an event known as the Diaspora. So yes, it's dated, it's ancient, but it's highly relevant. It's so relevant to this very moment. Think of some of the topics that James raises and how they relate to our situation. James says to respond to trials with joy. Well, 2020 has certainly had plenty of trials, and we have seen how God works in the midst of those trials in his people, just as James promises he he will. James deals with class warfare, how rich and poor are to relate to one another. Certainly we see a lot of that in our day. What does James do? James gives dignity to the poor. He gives humility to the rich. In our culture, we face a crisis of fatherlessness and family breakdown. Uh, leaving us with numerous functional uh, widows and orphans. And James says, this is true religion, to visit the widow and the orphan, to care for the widow and the fatherlessness in their distress. James gives us a strategy for mercy ministry, for dealing with uh, just this kind of situation that we see in our culture all around us, compensating for those missing men, rebuilding family life, providing family life for those who lack it. We live in a culture that is full of anger, A culture that's been called an outrage culture. People think that by venting this anger, they can produce positive change in the world. But what does James say? He tells us the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. In our contemporary political scene, uh, things are very much driven by what is called identity politics, which looks at people not so much as individuals, but mainly in terms of the groups of which they are a part. So things like your wealth and your uh, race and your gender come to define you and determine your value politically. Well, what does James have to say about this? At the beginning of James chapter 2, he takes on the politics of partiality, uh, the politics of favoritism. That's really what identity politics is. It's just the politics of favoritism. Uh, The politics of identity identity politics is just the politics of partiality. And James takes that on. And he calls on judges in particular to be impartial. He shows us that God's law does not leave any wiggle room for any kind of identity politics. Uh, There's no wiggle room there for any kind of favoritism or partiality. Identity politics is an injustice. James shows us this. So relevant to what we're facing. We also live in a culture that prides itself in tolerance. Our culture loves to quote Jesus, do not judge. Indeed, our culture's biggest problem with the church is that the church is perceived as judgmental. 
And so the culture uses Jesus against us. The culture uses our Jesus against us. They say, hey, Christians, don't judge how we live. Don't judge our sex lives. Don't judge our abortions. Don't judge our music and our movies. Jesus said, judge not. Aren't you going to obey your Jesus and stop judging us? The opposite of being judgy, of course, is being tolerant. And so you could easily jump to the conclusion that, you know, this is all you knew about our society, our culture, that if they are opposed to this kind of judgmentalism, then surely we must live in a very permissive, but very peaceful society, a very tolerant and non-judgmental society. But actually we find, if you know more about our culture, you already know this, uh, when we look at our culture, we find this is not the case at all. And so this is an issue I want to address. Our culture, for all its talk about tolerance, is actually very intolerant. All this talk about being uh, non-judgmental is really just talk. It's only talk. Our culture says don't judge, but our culture is actually very judgmental. Now you might ask, well, that's the case. If the culture is judgmental, why does our culture love to quote Jesus? Why do we hear those words, judge not, so often? This is the most popular Bible verse now, Matthew 7. It's the most popular Bible verse uh, in the culture today. Why is that? Why do we hear this quoted so much? Well, the world has learned one of the best ways to make Christians shut up is to accuse us of being judgmental, to cite our own scriptures against us. The world does it because it works. It's worked again and again to silence Christians. Now, we should not let that happen. Uh, it's all based on a big misunderstanding of what Jesus and following him, James, meant when they said, judge not. But unfortunately, there are some Christians who have been influenced by this, who have been uh, influenced by this in a way that's very harmful. Certainly you see this in the liberal or the mainline church, which this is really why the the mainline church has abandoned the orthodox faith and especially abandoned what scripture teaches on any controversial ethical issue, especially in sexual ethics, especially in this area of sexual ethics. But it has also crept into evangelical circles and even into ostensibly conservative denominations. Here's an example. Jen Hatmaker, maybe you know that name, sort of famous evangelical celebrity. Jen Hatmaker, uh, for years, has been a popular speaker and author for Christian women. And in the early days of his ministry, I'm, I'm not real familiar with her ministry, but in the early days of her ministry, she seemed to be pretty conservative and traditional in her outlook. But then in 2016, she started calling for the full inclusion of LGBT people in the church, without any repentance on their part, without acknowledging any sin, LGBT people simply ought to be included in the life of the church. She called on the church to approve of LGBT lifestyles uh, and came to, to see condemnations of LGBT lifestyles as intolerant and judgmental. And so this is how she describes her position. She says, acts of love are defined not by an objective standard, but by their effect on others. If your action hurts someone's feelings, it is unloving. This is how she puts it. She says, I lack all objectivity. I evaluate the merit of every idea based on how it bears upon actual people. When loving God results in pain, exclusion, 
harm or a trauma to people, then we are absolutely doing it wrong. Because loving God would never, that would never hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, to love God would mean you would never do anything that would, that would hurt another person's feelings. And this is the kind of view, this view of love, this is what led her to change her mind on LGBT issues. Anything that causes hurt or pain is wrong. So you see what, what, do you see what's happened here? Feelings have replaced the law of God as the standard. Hatmaker thinks she knows better than God, that her wisdom is greater than God's word, that hurting feelings rather than violating God's law is the standard of right action. Now, does this actually make her a less judgmental, more tolerant person than she was before? I would say no, not at all. Uh, She's just as intolerant and judgmental as before, maybe more so than she was back when she was teaching more traditional uh, evangelical views on these things. But she has changed who she judges and what she tolerates. I guarantee you that she would not hesitate to disagree with me over the issue of sexual ethics. She would not hesitate to call me unloving for my views on those particular things. And she would not care a whole lot if she hurt my feelings in doing so. People who say Christians are judgmental are themselves being judgmental. And you know what? That is because being judgmental is inescapable. Everybody's judgmental. You cannot get away from it. So Hatmaker no longer judges LGBT people, but she does judge traditional Christians. She used to not tolerate LGBT. Now she's intolerant towards Christians, towards more traditional, more biblically grounded Christians. And I would say, if anything, she's actually become more intolerant than she was before. G.K. Chesterton captured, captured this well when he said, it is the tendency of people who are liberal in theology to be illiberal in everything else. And I think that's exactly right. In all honesty, the most intolerant people are the people who are constantly telling us we have to be tolerant. Uh, The most judgmental people are the people who are constantly telling us to judge not. And this is exactly what has happened in our society. I want you to think about this. As we have become less Christian and more secular as a society, we have actually gotten less tolerant, more judgmental, more legalistic, less forgiving, more angry, and less kind. Let me spell that out. Think of uh, the Russian literary great Dostoevsky, who once famously said, without God, all things are permitted. Without God, all things are permitted. His point is that without an infinite, absolute, personal God, who created us in the beginning and who will judge us in the end, without that kind of God, there can be no true morality. You lose the very concepts of good and evil. You might still have personal preferences, but you don't have any absolute standard. You don't have these absolute categories of good and evil. Without God, all things are permitted. Philosophically, that is true. So again, you might think, okay, well then a society that does away with God, a society without God is what? It's going to be a totally free, totally tolerant, totally permissive, totally non-judgmental society, right? But actually, in reality, in practice, just the opposite happens. When you do away with God, you don't get freedom, you get bondage. You don't get this permissiveness, you actually get a very petty legalism. 
In reality, without God, nothing is permitted. Think about this. The, The most consistently godless societies in the world, societies like North Korea, are actually the least free, the most tyrannical, the most judgmental. And again, G.K. Chesterton, he puts it best, he captures this so well. G.K. Chesterton says, if we will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, we will be governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. You do away with God's law, you don't get no law, you get man's law, which is far more tyrannical, far more oppressive. You do away with the Ten Commandments, you don't get zero commandments, you get the Ten Thousand Commandments. When you do away with God, what you get is not a society without, without rules, but a society with rules, rules, and more rules, ever-changing rules, ever-multiplying rules, as man himself becomes lawgiver and judge. Again, all you have to do to see this is look around. Look particularly at the so-called woke crowd, you know, the social justice warriors. They're constantly finding new things to be offended by, new grievances, making up new rules for how you act or how you speak, new regulations. In the name of tolerance, they become intolerant. In the name of not judging, they judge constantly. In the name of throwing off God's law, we end up with a petty legalism that's far more tyrannical than anything ever created in medieval Europe or in Puritan America. All those freedoms that we have enjoyed, like freedom of speech and freedom of conscience, those freedoms are the byproduct of a society that is governed by God's law. But take God's word away as the foundation and you're going to lose all those freedoms. Man's law doesn't allow for those freedoms. Only God's law can provide for those freedoms. Only biblical law can ground and safeguard human rights and true freedoms that lead to human flourishing and thriving. Psalm 119.45, the psalmist says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your laws. David there says, the way of true freedom is to seek out the law of God. Seek out some other law to live by besides God's law. Say the law of feelings, like Jen Hatmaker. Or the law of Sharia, like Muslims. Or the law of utilitarianism, like a lot of the philosophers. Seek out those laws, and you will find yourself in bondage. And that is exactly what is happening in our culture. In the name of being non-judgmental, we become intolerant. We are becoming the very thing we feared the most. That's what's happening. But we still have to understand what Jesus and James mean when they say, judge not and do not judge your brother. We've seen judgment is inescapable, so neither Jesus nor James is forbidding all judging. What they're forbidding are certain kinds of judgments, a certain way of judging. But actually, both Jesus and James show us how to make a right judgment. See, there are there's a right way to make judgments and a wrong way to make judgments. And since making judgments is inescapable, it's going to be one or the other. Well, Jesus and James show us how to get, how to do this, how to how to do this rightly. A lot of people today, you know, want to paint a picture of Jesus as sort of the the first modern progressive. Jesus who's always nice, always tolerant, never judging. That's the picture sometimes that's, that's given. But actually, Jesus wasn't really all that nice. If you look at the Gospels, he's really not uh, all that nice. He's always loving, certainly, but he's not always nice. He's always loving. He's love incarnate. He's the very embodiment of God's love. But he's not always nice. Those who believe in a nice, 
Jesus, who only and always preached a message of love and acceptance, need to actually read their Bibles for a change. That's not the Jesus you find in the Gospels. Jesus, unlike Jen Hatmaker, had an objective standard for loving action. And he was not too concerned with hurting people's feelings if hurting their feelings actually led them to the truth. Jesus was, yes, compassionate to sinners. He would eat and drink with tax collectors and prostitutes. But he always denounced sin. And he always called people to repentance. Jesus caused trouble. He stirred things up. He said things nobody else would say or things nobody else had the courage to say. He upset the establishment when it was out of line with God's word. He was intolerant of sin. He was intolerant of the corrupt money changers in the temple. And so he made a whip and drove them out to show something greater than the temple is here. The fulfillment of the temple has arrived. He called the Pharisees and scribes snakes and vipers. He said, you're sons of the devil. He warmed of hellfire for those who would not follow him. He pronounced curses on his enemies. He was often deliberately provocative, saying intentionally offensive things. Sometimes he caused division rather than peace. Sometimes he got angry. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus acting as a judge, as one who is determining right from wrong, one who is making separations and divisions. He's one who judges, and he judges according to the truth and in truth. And so understand this. Whenever we as Christians, whenever we take some kind of bold stand on God's word, and we say this is right and this is wrong, whenever we take some bold stand on some theological or or practical issue, and then the world attacks us for it, and the world calls us unloving or judgmental or intolerant, we should not be bothered by that. Because the same things could be said of Jesus. Indeed, similar things were said of Jesus. A nice Jesus, after all, would not have ended up crucified. How does a nice Jesus ever end up on the cross? The true Christian faith, the Christian faith in its fullness will always be offensive to people until and unless they are willing to repent. There's just no getting around that. It does not matter how winsome you are. Sometimes I think Christians think, oh, if we're just winsome enough, then we can avoid the offense and we'll never find ourselves in trouble. We'll never get any hot water if we're just winsome enough. It's not true. You can be as winsome as you can be and still find that it causes offense to speak God's truth. And the fact is, Jesus requires us to do this. He requires us to speak this truth. He requires us to make these kinds of judgments. So what does judge not mean? What does judge not mean in context? In Matthew 7, Jesus says, judge not. But look at what else he says here. In verse 6, he says, do not cast your pearls before pigs or give what is holy to dogs. In order to do those things, to obey this, we have to make judgments about different kinds of people. Who are the pigs and the dogs? Jesus wants you to be a judge of character. He wants you to be a good judge of character. So you know who the pigs and the dogs are. In verses 15 and 16 of that same chapter, he warns of false prophets and says, you will know them by their fruits. This requires a kind of moral discernment. It requires inspecting the tree that is the prophet and making a judgment about its status. He wants us to make those kinds of judgments. Is this fruit good or bad? Is this prophet true or false? 
Give you another example of this later on in his gospel in Matthew 18. He requires us to confront sin in the community of his followers. And there are some sins that are so serious that if they are not repented of, we have to put that person outside of the church. And that requires a judgment. A judgment about the sin, a judgment about the person, a judgment about whether or not they're repentant. That requires at least the elders of the church to make judgments. At the very least, it requires the elders to be judges in this kind of way. So what is Jesus forbidding then? What does judge not mean? Well, he's forbidding hypocritical judging. He's forbidding self-righteous judging. You cannot judge the speck in another's eye when you have a beam in your own eye. You're not going to judge properly if you've got the beam in your eye. You can't judge that speck when you've got the beam in your eye. In other words, Jesus is saying, do not judge others unless you have first judged yourself. That's where it starts. Before you get into the business of judging other people, you've got to practice self-judgment. But we have a tendency to do just the opposite. And this is why Jesus says what he says here. Sometimes we are far harder on the sins of others than we are on our own. This is really the essence of, of what the Pharisees were doing. We excuse our sins and we condemn others for doing the same thing. We justify ourselves even as we condemn others. We accuse others even as we excuse ourselves. We try to build ourselves up by tearing others down. We spend more time and energy looking for faults in others than correcting our own. We condemn people for actions that we would also do if given the opportunity. We have a double standard. We go soft on ourselves and we're hard on other people. we got a soft standard for ourselves and a strict standard for other people. And that kind of hypocritical, double-minded, self-righteous judgment, that kind of arrogant judging is the very thing Jesus is forbidding. And really, it's what James condemns as well. We have to make judgments, but we must do so in love and wisdom and humility and honesty and integrity and in truth. Making judgments according to God's word. That's the point. You don't have the right to decide what is good and evil for your brother. All you can do is hold him and yourself to the same standard, the standard God has already given us in his word. All righteous judgments, all true judgments are founded upon God's word. Look a little more closely at what James says here. Verse 11, he says, do not speak evil of another, brethren. This reminds us of James' teaching back in chapter 3, where he described the power of the tongue and how the misuse of our speech can cause all kinds of destruction. So he's especially talking about spoken judgments. Speaking evil of another here is slander. That's what the word actually means. Do not slander your brother. It means you make a false judgment about your brother. It means you are falsely accusing him. It means you are spreading falsehoods, defaming him, ruining his reputation. Those false charges are destructive. This is not just grumbling about your brother or speaking in a derogatory way about him, though those things are bad. But this goes one step beyond that. It's setting yourself up as judge and jury or as prosecutor and judge. It's setting yourself up as the lawgiver so your judgments really take the place of God's. That's how you see it. And so still in verse 11, James goes on to say, he who slanders a brother and judges his brother actually slanders the law and judges the law. If you judge your brother in this way, you are really judging him according to your own standard. 
You are really making yourself the standard, which means you're really putting yourself in the place of God, which means when you slander your brother, you're really slandering God. And if you slander God, you're slandering God's law. And this kind of slander, of course, is blasphemy. To speak evil of your brother is to speak evil of God and his word. So what James is really saying here is that slander of the brethren is really blasphemy against God. To bring false accusations, to falsely accuse, to set yourself up as the the ultimate judge of your brother in that kind of way, that's not just slander against your brother, it's blasphemy against God. By falsely accusing one who bears God's image, you are really attacking God himself. You are judging God's word. You're really doing just what Adam and Eve did in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when they set themselves up as the judges of God's word. Has God really said? No, we'll put our word in the place of God's word. We'll put the serpent's word in the place of God's word. James goes on to say, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Jen Hatmaker, I think, is the perfect example of this. She judges God's law. She puts her own law, her own standard, her own definition of love in the place of God's law. But in doing so, she proves she is not a doer of the law. But she's just an example of the kind of thing that's happening all over the place in the church. James pushes on this. He goes on to say in verse 12, he says, there's one lawgiver. There's one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you. You're not God. That's the point. You're not the judge. You're not the lawgiver. Well, who is this one lawgiver? Who is this lawgiver James speaks of? Well, it depends what law James has in mind, doesn't it? it? If the law that uh, James has in mind is the law of Moses, the Jewish law found in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, then we might say Moses is the lawgiver. And we might say, of course, behind Moses is is God himself who gave the law to Moses, who gave it to the people. But remember, James has already made reference throughout his letter to a law. He's talked about the law of liberty and the royal law and the perfect or mature law. That's the law in view here. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law of Moses transformed. It's really, we could say, the law of Christ. That's what it's called elsewhere in the New Testament. And we could say, really, this law, at least in its foundational form, is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through where Jesus, like a new Moses, goes up on the mountain to deliver a new law to his people. And that's the law James has been giving commentary on and, and he's been applying throughout this letter. The law of Christ. The law found there in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice, this is James' way of communicating to us. Jesus has superseded Moses. He has fulfilled and deepened and transformed the law of Moses, suiting it to a new covenant age. And so the lawgiver here is really Jesus. And the judge is really Jesus. Indeed, he is the one who is able to save and destroy, as James says. And as Jesus himself warned about in Matthew chapter 10, he can save and destroy. He's the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell because he is our judge. We will stand before him at the last day, but he can also save us, body and soul. And so James concludes this section with a question. This is one of James' rhetorical strategies throughout the letter. He asks these pointed questions to drive his teaching home. He asks, who are you to judge another? Just who do you think you are? 
Who are you to judge another servant? Who are you to judge your brother in this way? Who are you to judge another? James has spoken to them throughout this letter with a sincere affection, even in this very section, calling them brothers. But he also warns them sternly. He says, do not dare judge one another in a self-righteous or prideful way or in a slanderous way. Again, who do you think you are? Don't hold people accountable for violating your own personal law code uh, or what you happen to think is best. Don't act as if you are lawgiver and final judge. No, your standard for judging anyone always, starting with yourself, must be the teaching of Jesus as he brings the old covenant to fulfillment and completes it in his ministry. Jesus himself and his teaching is the standard. He is the judge, and that must be our standard. Our judgment must match his. It must echo his. We must submit our judgments to those of Jesus. And in fact, you know what's interesting here? I would actually argue that James, throughout this letter, has given us a model of exactly what he wants us to do. What has James been doing through this letter? He's been constantly judging the Christians he's writing to. He's been correcting them and calling them to repentance. He's been judging their behavior, judging their actions. And he doesn't contradict that. He doesn't contradict that practice here in James 4.11. All throughout his letter, as he makes these judgments, many times as he speaks against them, he's not slandering them. He's loving them with the truth when he speaks to them this way, even when he speaks against them. What is he doing? He's echoing the Sermon on the Mount. He's using Jesus as the standard, applying that standard to their lives individually, to their corporate life together. He's holding these Christians up to Jesus as the model, as the rule, and saying, look, this is where you're falling short. When he corrects their partiality or their hypocrisy, he's not slandering them. He's judging them truly, and he's helping them move move forward so they can do better in the future. Because he loves them and he wants them to flourish. He wants them to thrive. And that can only happen if they embrace the royal law. The perfect law of liberty. The law of Christ. And of course, we must do the same. And this means we have to learn to judge rightly. We cannot escape making judgments. So we better make them properly. Which is to say, we better make them biblically. When the world says to the church, stop being judgmental, what is the world doing? Well, now in light of what James teaches, we can see. The world is judging. They're judging us for being judgmental. That makes them judgmental. And what standard are they using? Their own. Which means they're playing God. And we ought not to play along with that at all. We should not be put off by these false accusations, these slanders that are brought against the church when they accuse us of hate speech or judgmentalism. Again, it's just slander. It's just blasphemy. There's no reason for us to be influenced by that or to submit to it. We have to judge to be faithful. We have to make judgments. And that means we have to judge evil and call it out and name it for what it is according to God's word. It's crazy to have to say this, but in our day you do. It is not evil to condemn evil. 
In fact, it is evil to not condemn evil. That's the real evil. Further, disagreeing with someone's lifestyle does not mean you hate them. In fact, it might be the strongest possible sign of love to take that risk in applying the judgment of God's Word to someone else's behavior to say, hey brother, do you see how what you're doing here displeases Jesus? That may be the most loving thing you can do for somebody. To disagree with someone doesn't mean you hate them. Just as we'd say to love somebody doesn't mean you agree with everything they do. And that's why Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth arrogantly is not loving, it's alienating. We have to speak the truth in love, which means speaking the truth in humility. But to fail to speak the truth when we should is cowardly rather than compassionate. And all too often, cowardice has been a cover for, we've used compassion to cover up our cowardice. We're actually cowards. We don't want to speak God's truth. We don't want to make God's judgment. So we don't, and we call that compassion. We just can't do that. We can be compassionate and uncompromising in our convictions at the same time. And I would argue that is what James is calling us to do. To truly and lovingly apply the law of Christ to apply the law of Christ, which is the law of love, to our own lives and to others' lives. That's what James is calling us to. Or we could point to the words of Jesus in John chapter 7 that really sum all of this up. In John chapter 7, Jesus tells us, judge with a righteous judgment. That's it. That's our call. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.